This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde asks why all the blame for the sewage dumping scandal is pointed towards politicians. Why not blame the water company bosses? Writer Sam Parker on the Gen Z entrepreneurs who are turning their backs on office nine-to-fives and turning their personal passions into full-time jobs. Historian Lucy Worsley asks, did best-selling author Agatha Christie really go into hiding to frame her husband for murder? Finally, neuroscientist and psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett asks, can we really tell what animals are feeling or are we merely projecting? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now... As the true horror of our affluent water company's effluence comes to the surface and holidaymakers are told to, for the love of God, please only enjoy the view, Marina Hyde rolls out the red carpet for the usual suspects and their lesser known but just as culpable utility counterparts, a veritable who's who to blame. Read by Neve Kuzak. I have an idea in the public policy apocalyptic light entertainment space. No water company boss should be allowed to collect their salary or bonus unless they take a long and exhaustively reported dip in the waters of one of the beaches they pump sewage into that same morning. Just think of it. The first wild-swimming article you genuinely want to read. In the meantime, the water firms keep on doing it, with one of the hottest summers on record punctuated by daily reports of both drought and sewage discharge. Environment Agency data suggests the amount of raw sewage pumped into seas and rivers by the water companies has increased 2,553% in the past five years. To Jonathan Swift... Scatological humour seemed the rational satirical response to the state of early 18th century politics. To us, it's simply the factual state of affairs. There's no real need to write a metaphorical poem about parliamentarians dabbling in their dung, 
since any MP who has holidayed on these shores this summer has literally done it. In England, the water firms have paid £72 billion in shareholder dividends since privatisation and are somehow still whining about the difficulty of finding money to invest in infrastructure. Privatisation was, strangely, always cited as the best way of boosting said infrastructure. So you have to ask, what was it that first attracted water company CEOs to a poorly regulated monopoly from which they have collectively siphoned out a combined £58 million in salaries and bonuses since 2017? and where average boss bonuses have increased 20% in the past year of corporate failure alone. I guess you'd have to go with love of water. Just a deep and abiding fascination with the famous clear liquid, the old H2O, and any other aquatic synonymization that will ideally secure me a place in second mentions. I keep trying to picture that bit of the job interview where the would-be water CEOs explain that they are ultimately just passionate about water and are in no way corporate sharks who just need something or other to swim through on the way to their economic prey. Naturally, there's been a renewed focus on the politicians who got us here. Yesterday... The Guardian revealed that sewage discharge doubled after a huge efficiency cut to the Environment Agency in 2015, ordered by then-Environment Secretary Liz Truss. Truss. Of course. Of course. Special mention must also be made of all the Conservative MPs who, on the very eve of Boris Johnson's COP26 climate conference last year, opted to vote against stopping sewage being dumped in rivers without requiring firms by law to make the urgent investments needed to stop it happening for millions of hours year after year. Once again, you really do have to marvel at the cheapness and beatenness of the UK. At least in the US, it costs lobbyists untold millions to get individual politicians to sell their soul and do grotesque things to benefit the industries they represent. Yet every time you see footage of raw sewage power-hosing out onto a UK beach in the constituency of someone who voted for it to be allowed, do reflect on the fact that it probably only cost some public affairs wanker a couple of Champions League tickets. So that's the politicians. Yet what are the firms themselves and the so-called regulator off what? So few of us know our watery overlords. Way back when I worked on this newspaper's diary column, we'd occasionally announce new featured characters culled from whatever were the enraging news stories of the time. This selection of horrors and irritants were unveiled seasonally, with fanfares such as announcing our spring collection and we are pleased to confirm the following lines will be carried in our summer collection. Given the state of this utility alone, More on the others later this week. I very much feel a new collection needs to be hastened out. It does seem rather unfair that the attention lingers only on the politicians when the water company CEOs are themselves doing so much to delight us, yet somehow fly under the household name radar. Let's immediately add them to the autumn collection. A sarcastically warm welcome to public life then to Sarah Bentley, boss of Thames Water.
Come on out, Sarah. Joining her are CEO of Anglian Water, Peter Simpson, and Yorkshire Water's Nicola Shaw. Don't be shy, guys. A slow clap, too, for Wessex Water's Colin Skellett, Steve Mogford of United Utilities, Southwest Water's Susan Davy, Southern Water's Lawrence Gosden, Seven Trent's Liv Garfield, and Northumbrian Water's Heidi Mottram. Welcome all. We do hope to spraying much, much more unsolicited content about you across the pages and airwaves over the coming months, the better to showcase your very British success stories. And don't let's forget David Black, chief exec of Offwat, which, despite the increasingly deafening public outcry, can't even be bothered using its full range of powers to sanction water company directors via their remuneration packages. What are you waiting for, David? Then again, what is anyone waiting for? As the public realm plunges deeper into chaos and dysfunction, other than Liz Truss to make landfall. As for the type of place she's going to blow into, that has passed beyond the realm of metaphor and become all too grimly literal. Yep. Welcome to Shit Creek. Population? Us. That was Roll Up, Roll Up and Meet the Watery Overlords Pumping Sewage onto Britain's Shores This Summer by Marina Hyde Read by Neve Kuzak Next As Generation Z faces unprecedented levels of uncertainty many have sought to channel their panic into a less traditional approach to the working world the entrepreneurial nature of the side hustle has opened up a world that allows young people to navigate an unsteady market whilst dictating the terms of their workday. Something, says Sam Parker, we should all aspire to. Read by Jason Dunn. In 2010, not long into my first job on a magazine, now in the great magazine graveyard in the sky, a fellow junior and I were appraising the performance of a new intern. Fresh out of university, this person had arrived late and then suggested they conduct the celebrity interview for the next issue. That's the thing with these young ones coming through now, my colleague said with a solemn shake of their head. They just don't want to put the graft in. Twelve years later, and society is in a moment of transformation when it comes to work and our attitudes towards it. The great resignation, or at least the great thinking about resignation, is upon us. The Covid pandemic smashed through many of the grand narratives we have passed down for generations about having a job, the need to be present in an office, the idea we are somehow indispensable to the wider machine we are operating in. For older people already in charge, this meant scrambling to adjust the modern workplace to be more flexible and inclusive in the hope this would keep the young people in their organisations happy. But Generation Z already had other ideas. It's not just that many of them entered the workplace in the era of Covid, it's that they had already watched my generation, the pitiful millennials, get sucked into a broken social contract. The one that promised if you found a good job and worked hard, you'd get ahead. 
They saw us stifled and infantilised by two recessions, mired in existential despair about the housing crisis and now vulnerable again as the cost of living crisis asserts its grip. Gen Z stand up to their employers in a way no previous generation has, something usually dismissed as a spoiled sense of entitlement. But in record numbers, they are also mobilising to establish incomes that don't rely on their elders. They're dropshipping, Amazon reselling, flipping designer sneakers, spread betting, investing in crypto and NFTs. They're inventing their own cosmetic lines for TikTok or selling homemade teeth grills on Instagram. They want to be famous on social media not just because it feels good, but because they can monetize it in shrewd ways. Some people call it a new golden age of entrepreneurialism, others the rise of the side hustle. But at the core of Gen Z's attitude to work is a desire as old as capitalism itself to be financially independent, to opt out of old-fashioned ideas like having a boss altogether. All of which begs the question, is the problem that they have unrealistic expectations and don't want to put the graft in, or do they, gulp, know something we don't? In 2014, when Ajua Awusi Darko was 15 and working in a greetings card shop, She'd buy new outfits rather than waste her wages on alcohol. I wanted to look cool on non-uniform days, she says, but it wasn't very practical. I was buying things I'd wear once or that were ill-fitting and not really me. Then, in 2016, a friend mentioned she'd sold a pair of dungarees on an app called Depop, a social e-commerce platform where people were offloading unwanted clothes. Inspired to clear some space, Adua got out a camera. I decided to model, but I was uncomfortable showing my face, she says. The solution she came up with, taking shots with the camera held in front of her face, became her signature aesthetic, different from the crumpled flat lays or limp coat hanger shots elsewhere on the app. Soon, Adua was being featured on Depop's hallowed Explore page, and at 18, her store, Minnie's World, was born. Depop is a proudly young space, with 90% of its active users under 26. It taps into many of the values cherished by Gen Z. Sustainability, authenticity, and the chance to buy from influencers rather than faceless corporations. Adua was able to support herself through university without needing a conventional job. An appearance on Channel 4's Super Shoppers saw Minnie's world take off, and now she has a second business as a consultant, helping other Depop sellers get started. In May this year, Elite Business magazine published a report claiming that Gen Z entrepreneurs are leading the post-Covid recovery in the UK. It found that among the country's sole traders, those from Gen Z are the only age group to have experienced annual increases in revenue during the pandemic. Despite this, one crucial distinction between Gen Z and previous generations may be how they measure success. After growing her business over lockdown, Adua, now 24, took the decision to press pause. 
Towards the end of 2021, my mental health really suffered, she says. Even though I was doing well financially, I decided to downscale. I think Gen Z put a lot of emphasis on well-being and mental health, and being in an environment that really serves them. It is important to be mentally and financially stable, and one should not cost the other. I can wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm really not feeling great, I can take this day off and chill. Then the next day I can scale up and work from midnight to 5am if I want to. That is what gives me quality of life. That's something to aspire to. Even prior to Covid, a 2018 report from Reading Business School had declared this the age of the side hustle, claiming it generates £72 billion for the UK, or about 3.6% of GDP, and 16-24 to year-olds are leading the charge. Scrolling through the TikTok hashtags of hashtag hustle and hashtag side hustle, where countless creators, mostly young men, post updates about their quest for financial freedom, I came across Jack Calvert from Middlesbrough. He was discussing something called the Hustlers University, an online course currently at the centre of controversy and feverish debate. Does it truly unlock the secrets to getting rich from your laptop, or is it best avoided? I've always been kind of obsessed with money, Jack, age 20, tells me. When I was a kid, I used to sell raffle tickets to my family and pick a random toy from my bedroom as the prize. He also tried, unsuccessfully, to make money online from streaming his FIFA sessions on Twitch and YouTube. Then, over lockdown, Jack, a year into an accountancy degree, got interested in the murky world of affiliate marketing. He says the method he used involved building a mailing list of email addresses via social media, then spamming them with other offers for various deals around the internet, which, in turn, gave him a small referral fee should they make a purchase. Basically, the next time you get an email from an unfamiliar account promising amazing iPad deals, it may well be a teenager in Teesside trying to launch their business empire. Jack's TikTok posts about passive income and affiliate marketing and various other digital buzzwords were averaging 400 to 500 views. In that time, he says he made a total of £700 profit. But when he started posting about Hustlers University, his views shot up, with some reaching hundreds of thousands. Since then, he has started regularly going on TikTok live streams, fielding questions from other would-be hustlers curious to know whether they should pay £39 a month to unlock Hustlers University secrets. So, what are these secrets? Hustlers University is an online academy that offers a series of lessons on things such as crypto investing, dropshipping and copywriting. Information on these topics is not hard to track down for free online, but what you get with Hustlers University is an incentive to convince others to follow you. Jack, like all members, gets a 48% cut. The referrals were never the original goal. They're kind of a happy bonus, Jack insists. And so far, he says, he's sticking to his word by giving people an honest account of the programme's merits. I try to give a fair reflection. I always say, it's working fine for me, but it may not be worth it for you. 
Obviously, you do get a lot of people falsely promoting it and claiming it's going to be better than it is, which is quite scummy, says Jack. Though the course itself tells you not to do that. It may well, but one of the reasons Hustlers University is so popular is that it's owned by Andrew Tate, a 35-year-old former British-American kickboxer, subject of an Observer investigation recently. Tate was ejected from Big Brother in 2016 after a video of him beating a woman came to light, although they both denied any abuse occurred and claimed it was harmless consensual role-play. Whether he is truly the epitome of toxic masculinity or just putting it on for views is a subject for debate. But for many of the people giving him £39 a month in the hope it'll make their wildest dreams come true, it's beside the point. When we spoke, after two months of spending an hour or two a day following the secrets of Hostler's University, Jack says he has made only £2,000. But he insists he is learning useful skills and will focus on video game design and fashion next. If the tools Gen Z are using feel alien, the qualities that make a truly successful entrepreneur perhaps haven't changed all that much. Ben Towers started his business aged 11, helping one of his mum's friends make a website. It was 2010 and Ben was given £50 for his efforts. Thrilled, he took his new skill set and tapped into the then burgeoning online freelance world, helping more hapless boomers who wanted to keep pace with the digital age. He was so successful that his mother became nervous about the money he was making and insisted he hire a lawyer and an accountant. Eventually, I started moving more into marketing, because once these businesses had their website, they then wanted to know how to get people to visit them. By the time he was 14, he was subcontracting other remote freelancers to help him manage the workload alongside his schoolwork. At 17, he quit school early, employing himself as an apprentice to meet the criteria for doing so. By 18, he had scaled his business, Towers Design, to a team of 26. In 2017, he sold it in a merger that made him a millionaire. Articulate, modest and polite, Ben, now 24, is often used as a poster boy for Gen Z entrepreneurialism in the UK. Ironically, for someone who never had much interest in joining a traditional workplace, his new venture, Tahora, which he co-founded, helps big businesses such as Google, NatWest and the RSPCA make their workplaces more inclusive and appealing for younger workers. In a sense, Ben is repeating the same trick that got him started at 11 by exploiting a knowledge gap between him and an older generation. In 2010, it was every business owner wanting a Facebook page. Today, it's that they want help satisfying a generation of employees who demand more than a salary and paid holiday. Get your workplace culture wrong, as a New York Times article from 2021 with the chilling title The 37-year-olds are afraid of the 23-year-olds who work for them pointed out, and Gen Z will say, actually, we can leave and do whatever we want. Interestingly, Ben attributes this appetite for independence among his generation not to their aptitude for the internet as much as the sense of panic it has helped instill in them. 
My generation has been exposed to a level of information that society has never seen before, he says. It used to be that you'd read a paper or sit down and watch the news once in the evening. Now we open our phones 60 times a day. I think our experience of fake news has led us to just go, I don't trust the world. I'm not going to get any opportunities coming my way. It's a fight or flight idea. I'm going to have to fight. I'm going to have to make my own money. Adua, Jack and Ben all say they have benefited from relatively comfortable and supportive upbringings and that hustle culture can be dangerous for those who are less fortunate or just naive. The average entrepreneur earns less than the minimum wage, Ben warns. The vast majority do it because they love the challenge. For me, that's very different to people who are just desperate to have the entrepreneur lifestyle. Talking to young people who are finding their own ways through the traditional career path, or just ignoring it altogether, is inspiring. But you also can't help but feel angry on their behalf. I graduated during the 2007 recession, but spent my childhood cocooned in the 90s. Gen Z grew up witnessing the harsh realities of austerity, the housing crisis and spiralling personal debt, and had to be the first to navigate social media as children. Rather than be broken by all of this, many have found creative ways to turn their digital nativism to their advantage and have embraced a concept we only pay lip service to. Work-life balance as a true ambition. The more you see the world from Gen Z's perspective, the more you realise how ridiculous it is to expect them to tackle the challenges we left behind by working tirelessly and without complaint for one corporation or another, hoping it'll all be okay. They're far too shrewd, too determined, too hopeful for that. Maybe we should be taking notes. That was I'm Gonna Have to Make My Own Money, The Rise of the Side Hustle by Sam Parker, read by Jason Dunn. We'll be back after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, in 1926, the world's best-selling author, Agatha Christie, 
vanished for 11 days. Did she really go into hiding to frame her husband for murder? Historian Lucy Worsley reopens a case still shrouded in mystery. Read by Neve Kuzak. Agatha Christie was sitting quietly on a train when she overheard a stranger saying her name. In the carriage, she said, were two women discussing me, both with copies of my paperback editions on their knees. They had no idea of the identity of their fellow passenger and proceeded to discuss the most famous author in the world. I hear, said one of the ladies, she drinks like a fish. I love this story because it sums up so much about Agatha Christie's life. They both had her paperbacks. Of course they did. Christie wrote more than 80 books, outsold only by Shakespeare and the Bible, so the cliché runs. And she wasn't just a novelist either. She remains history's most performed female playwright. She was so successful, people think of her as an institution, not as a breaker of new ground. But she was both. And then, in the railway carriage, there's the watchful presence of Christie herself, unnoticed. Yes, she was easy to overlook, as is the case with nearly any woman past middle age. But she deliberately played on the fact that she seemed so ordinary. It was a public image she carefully crafted to conceal her real self. If the women on the train had asked her profession, she'd have said she had none. When an official form required her to put down what she did, the woman who is estimated to have sold two billion copies always wrote, Housewife. Despite her gigantic success, she retained her perspective as an outsider and onlooker. She sidestepped a world that tried to define her. When I told people I was writing about Christie, their first questions were often about the 11 dramatic days in 1926 when she disappeared at the height of her writing career, causing a nationwide hunt for her corpse. It's a mystery that has obsessed her fans ever since. By this stage, Christie was already a celebrity. The murder of Roger Ackroyd, her ingenious masterpiece, had just been published and her literary agent was pushing for a follow-up. There were photos of her in the Daily Mail, a new publishing contract with William Collins and a £500 advance for serial rights to the man in the brown suit that paid for a Morris Cowley car. By December 1926, her marriage to Archie Christie was in trouble. She herself, she later wrote, was at the beginning of a nervous breakdown. The couple had moved to a grand 12-bedroom house in Sunningdale, Berkshire, which they named Styles. But Archie was often absent, and Agatha was increasingly unhappy there. The death of her beloved mother and Archie's unsympathetic response, he didn't even go to the funeral, had strained their relationship almost to breaking point when Archie confessed that he was in love with someone else, a young woman called Nancy Neal, and wanted a divorce. It has often been claimed that Christie went into hiding in order to frame her husband for her murder. Was this true? It's also frequently said that Christie remained silent about this notorious incident for the rest of her life. But that's incorrect, 
and I've pieced together the surprising number of statements she did in fact make about it. What Christie said has the unfortunate effect of sounding like one of her novels, in which the loss of memory plot would feature time and time again. But her writings about her life have had this novelizing tendency all along. It doesn't mean she is lying. I just wanted my life to end, she explained. All that night I drove aimlessly about. In my mind there was the vague idea of ending everything. I drove automatically down roads I knew, to Maidenhead, where I looked at the river. I thought about jumping in, but realised that I could swim too well to drown. Then back to London again, and then on to Sunningdale. From there I went to Newlands Corner. She was tired. She was in deep distress. At last she put into action a vague plan that had occupied her thoughts for the previous 24 hours. When I reached a point in the road which I thought was near the quarry I had seen in the afternoon, I turned the car off the road down the hill towards it. I left the wheel and let the car run. The car struck something with a jerk and pulled up suddenly. I was flung against the steering wheel and my head hit something. Christie's car was found lodged in a hedge, its front wheels over the edge of the chalk pit. Had it not been for the hedge, the car would have plunged over and been smashed to pieces. It seems that Christie shocked herself into realising that whatever happened, life was worth living. And so, dazed, distressed but alive, she got out of her car. With injuries from the impact to her head and chest, she walked through the wintry countryside in a dreamlike state. She was reborn. Up to this moment, I was Mrs. Christie, she explains. Now she had sloughed off the past like a dead skin. Only that way could she survive. She abandoned her car and walked away, out of her old life. This was the action that would leave her family, friends and the police absolutely flummoxed. For a long time, people investigating Christie's disappearance have tended towards one of two positions. One is that, in the days after the crash, she was experiencing the specific condition of dissociative fugue, a state brought on by trauma and stress, in which you literally forget who you are. The alternative position is that she was faking it, even trying to frame Archie for killing her. Only one thing can be said for certain. On Saturday, the 4th of December, 1926, and for some days thereafter, Christie experienced a distressing episode of mental illness brought on by the trauma of the death of her mother and the breakdown of her marriage. She lost her way of life and her sense of self. So what should we believe? Christie reported that on that Saturday morning, while the police were investigating her abandoned car, she had lost her memory. With the help of a psychotherapist, she would later begin to put together a narrative of the movements she had blanked out. I remember arriving at a big railway station, she recalled eventually, and being surprised to learn it was Waterloo. It is strange, she said, that the railway authorities there did not recall me, as I was covered with mud and I had smeared blood on my face from a cut on my hand. Christie's mind began to protect itself from further pain by inventing a new identity. I had now become, in my mind, 
Mrs. Theresa Neal of South Africa, she says. Someone who had the same surname as Archie's lover. Someone who came from a place where she and Archie had been happy. You can't write your fate, Christy would say years later, but you can do what you like with the characters you create. So she created a new character for herself. A character as which she could do what she wanted. What she wanted most of all was to escape from the unbearable life of Mrs. Christie. Theresa Neal went to King's Cross and bought a ticket for the spa resort of Harrogate. The winter light must have faded by the time her train arrived. She took a taxi to a hotel, apparently picked at random, called the Hydropathic. She'd always liked the anonymity of hotels, where she'd often stayed, alone, writing. Christy arrived with no suitcase, but explained she had recently come from South Africa and had left her luggage with friends. She gave her name as Mrs. Theresa Neal, signing the register in her usual handwriting. Mr. W. Taylor, the hotel's manager, stated later that his guest took a good room on the first floor, fitted with hot and cold water. The price of seven guineas a week caused her no hesitation. She seemed to have as much money as she wanted. Christie's room was serviced by a young chambermaid named Rosie Asher, who seems to have kept a particularly close eye on her. Asher spotted that Mrs. Neal had brought hardly anything with her, but she was desperate for her life to unfold in an orderly fashion. So she went down for dinner and even took part in the evening's dancing. The guests, who were also referred to as patients, embraced this single woman in their midst. I danced with Mrs. Christie the evening she arrived, one of them said later. She does the Charleston, but not very well. Christie seemed to enjoy her life in limbo. Her chambermaid noted that on Sunday, while police were searching the Surrey Downs for her or her body, she slept in until 10am, had breakfast in bed, and then went out. On Monday morning, Asher noticed Christie had the London newspaper taken up with breakfast in bed. It would have been hard to avoid the story about Mrs. Christie's disappearance, but she somehow managed to set the knowledge aside. She began to equip herself with a new wardrobe. Later that day, after a visit to the shops, packages began to be delivered to her room. New hat, coat, evening shoes, books and magazines, pencil and fruit, and various toilet requisites. People noticed that she usually had a book in her hand. She'd been to the W.H. Smith Library in Parliament Street, where the librarian gathered from her selections that she had a taste for novels of sensation and mystery. That evening, Christy came down to dinner in a proper evening dress with a new fancy scarf. Hotel staff would report that she has made a number of friends. She played billiards and even sang aloud. Miss Corbett, the hotel's entertainment hostess, spotted that Mrs. Neal still had the price, 75 shillings, pinned to her new shawl. Is that all you are worth? asked one of the guests. I think I am worth more than that, was her answer. At the Hydro, people were beginning to suspect who Mrs. Neal really was. After all, on Tuesday the 7th of December, a portrait had appeared on the Daily Express's front page. The resemblance was unmissable.
When she'd been here about four days, recalled the hotel's manager, my wife said to me, I believe that lady is Mrs. Christie. Mr. Taylor thought his wife was being absurd. But she wasn't the only one to have worked it out. The following day, the Westminster Gazette reported that no fewer than 300 police officers and special constables had taken part in a search in Surrey. They were pretty certain they were hunting for a corpse. But Christie was oblivious. Life was much better now. As Mrs. Neal, she said later, I was very happy and contented. At Harrogate, she said, I read every day about Mrs. Christie's disappearance. I regarded her as having acted stupidly. A fellow guest remembered her saying that Mrs. Christie is a very elusive person. I cannot be bothered with her. Also, according to this witness, Christie was beginning to show signs of mental distress. She would press her hand to her forehead and say, It is my head. I cannot remember. Meanwhile, Archie, stressed and terrified that his infidelity would be revealed by the papers, had made an awful mistake. He had given an ill-advised interview to the Daily Mail. Perhaps hoping to divert attention away from Nancy Neal, he introduced the idea that maybe his wife had deliberately disappeared. My wife, he'd said to a reporter, had discussed the possibility of disappearing at will. Engineering a disappearance had been running through her mind, probably for the purpose of her work. Personally, I feel that is what happened. And he now defended himself against the charge that he'd been a bad husband. It is absolutely untrue to suggest that there was anything in the nature of a row or a tiff between my wife and myself on Friday morning. I strongly depreciate introducing any tittle-tattle into this matter. Readers must have thought he protested far too much. On the morning of Saturday, the 11th of December, the Telegraph carried a big advert for a forthcoming serialisation of The Murder on the Links. It was trumpeted as the work of Agatha Christie, the missing novelist. These were obviously the words of Christie's publishers, not Christie herself. But readers could be forgiven for thinking the author was somehow cashing in on her new notoriety. The author herself had had enough of reading the papers. At the Hydro, on the Sunday morning, no newspaper was taken up to the bedroom. On the Tuesday, the Daily Mail ran an editorial. If Christie were alive, its writer argued, she must be ready to inflict intense anxiety on her relatives and heavy expenditure on the public in a heartless practical joke. Unfortunately for Christie's lasting reputation, many of her biographers, notably her male ones, have been as heavily invested in this narrative as the male police officers and journalists who made it into such a sensation at the time. She set out deliberately, the facts shouted, to throw murder suspicion upon her husband, says one of these writers. From there, the idea has spread into films and novels. The milder have her down as a woman wronged with an understandable desire for revenge. The more extreme, notably the feature film Agatha, made in 1979, present her as the would-be murderer of Nancy Neal, and so the injustice has been perpetuated. It's time to do something radical. 
to listen to what Christy says, to understand she had a range of experiences unhelpfully labelled as loss of memory, and, perhaps most importantly, when she says she was suffering, to believe her. Unbeknown to the police and public who were looking for her in Surrey, matters in Yorkshire were moving swiftly towards a denouement. That Sunday evening, two men went to Harrogate Police Station to report their suspicion that Mrs Christie was staying in the hotel where they worked. Christie's disappearance had the impact it did because of the 1920s context that saw a new kind of media celebrity being created. She wasn't alone in becoming an author as celebrity. It may have been accidental and deeply unpleasant, but it would also become a central plank of her massive success. That was I Just Wanted My Life to End. What Happened When Agatha Christie Went Missing by Lucy Worsley. Read by Neve Kuzak. Finally, Neuroscientist, psychologist and author Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett has been leading on groundbreaking research into human emotions for decades. Despite this knowledge, other members of the animal kingdom remain a mystery. So how do we know what they can truly feel? The answer, she says, may lie with us. Read by Jason Dunn. When a dog growls at you, is it angry? When a squirrel flees up a tree at your approach, is it fearful? When an elephant stands for days on a spot where another has died, is it grieving? If you live with an animal, the non-human kind, you might think the answer is obvious, but the scientific question remains tantalisingly open. Let's start with some well-established findings. Every animal's brain regulates its organs, hormones and the other systems of its body via electricity and swirling chemicals. Inside your own body, these processes keep you alive and also somehow produce your general mood in ways that scientists are still puzzling out. Your mood is kind of a summary of how your whole body is doing. It ranges from pleasant to unpleasant and from still to activated. Mood is not emotion. It is always with you, even when you're not emotional. Do other animals consciously feel mood as we do? They cannot tell us, so we can't know for sure. Philosopher Peter Godfrey Smith, in his book Metazoa, proposes three behaviours that may provide clues. Does the animal tend to and protect its injured body parts? Many do including birds, mammals, octopuses and crustaceans. But flies can lose a limb and carry on as normal. Does the animal appear to consider costs and benefits? Crabs will tolerate electric shocks in order to remain in place if the smell of a predator is wafting about. Does the animal seek pain-killing chemicals after an injury? Chickens do. They choose drug-laced feed over the regular stuff when they're hurt. Some fish will swim in shallower waters where predators may lurk to reach and consume opioids. Bees, however, don't display these kinds of behaviours. Moving from mood to emotion is trickier because the question of animal emotions depends on how you define emotion in the first place. 
Some scientists think emotions are specific feelings, such as the dread of fear, and ask if other animals feel them. Other scientists define them as behaviours with useful survival functions, such as actions that allow an animal to escape a predator. Still, others define emotions as the brain circuits that correspond to those behaviours. For example, they search for a specific fear circuit that could trigger freezing in situations we would consider fearful. Each of these definitions of emotion requires human inference, observing an animal's physical state and guessing at its psychological meaning. To tackle this problem, let's attempt to separate out the human perspective. Consider a fly, a rat and a person in situations we'd think of as frightening. Sweep a fly swatter above the fly and it rubs its legs together rapidly. Train the rat to associate an audio tone with a painful shock. Play the tone alone and the rat freezes in place. Observe a man who is being followed by a stranger on a dark street and he widens his eyes, constantly looking back while his heart pounds in his chest. A typical scientist observing these animals concludes that all three are exposed to a threat and are therefore in a state of fear. But here's the curious thing. The three examples have virtually nothing in common physically. They involve different kinds of brains in different situations, moving different kinds of bodies in different ways. So, where's the similarity that makes all three situations fear? It's in the scientist's own brain. You may well experience a world full of animals who cry in sadness, screech in terror and skulk in guilt. But these are effortless inferences on your part. Human perceptions that give meaning to cries, screeches and skulks. I'm not saying emotions are imaginary. I'm saying our brains have evolved to instantly group things together as similar even when they are physically different, such as leg-rubbing flies, freezing rats and wide-eyed humans. We categorise like this 24-7, most of the time without realising it. As an example from a different branch of science, Mercury, Earth and Jupiter are all planets, so they must be similar in some way, right? Well, Mercury is a tiny, hot, barren rock, Earth is three times larger and its surface mostly water, teeming with life. Jupiter is a gigantic ball of gas. Where's the similarity? In our brains. We focus on abstract features such as orbits the sun and ignore immense differences in size and substance to group these heavenly bodies into the same category. A big rock in space is physically real, but the category planet is a human creation. Emotions that you see and hear in others are also human creations. When you experience another animal as fearful, you're not detecting fear in any objective sense. It is a construction in your brain that happens automatically and faster than you can snap your fingers. Your brain groups different movements, sounds and other physical signals together into the same category to give them emotional meaning. If a fly beneath a looming fly swatter rubs its legs together on one occasion but freezes on another, 
A human brain can generalise across both cases to interpret the fly as being in a state of fear. But are fly brains equipped to go beyond physical features and construct this level of meaning? How about the brain of a cat or dog? The answer is probably no. Some animal brains, such as those of chimps, can categorise abstractly. But to the best of our knowledge, only we have the wiring to compute abstractions of this magnitude. A non-human animal's fearful state is real for human observers, but not necessarily for the creature itself. As scientists, we must be extremely careful to separate our physical observations from our mental guesses. When we don't, it can be really problematic. If a scientist discovers a brain circuit that controls freezing behaviour in rats, calls it a fear circuit, and discovers that a certain drug can suppress the circuit, it's a mistake to assume that the drug tames the symptoms of human disorders, such as PTSD. When we slip off our lab coats, it might be beneficial to assume that other animals have the same emotions we do because it encourages empathy. It's easier to admit them into our moral circle and protect them. Empathy is important, but this view also tempts us to see other animals as inferior versions of humans, full of emotionality but lacking the rationality to tame it. And placing ourselves at the pinnacle of the animal kingdom in this way can lead us to mistreat creatures which seem less sophisticated than we believe ourselves to be. Perhaps it's more respectful and scientifically useful to contemplate animals on their own terms. Dogs can smell things we cannot. Birds can see colours we cannot. So maybe they can also feel things we cannot. When one elephant stands by the body of another for days, clearly something is happening. But why must it be a primitive version of human grief? How do we know the elephant isn't guarding the body from scavengers, gloating over the death of a rival, or experiencing something else that we can't possibly comprehend? The idea that other animals share our emotions is compelling and intuitive, but the answers we provide may reveal more about us than about them. That was The Big Idea. Do Animals Have Emotions? by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Read by Jason Dunn. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Neve Kuzak and Jason Dunn and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.